Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is the 10th installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 24 through 27 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insights on aspects of the novel, and we are also sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this 10th installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 24 The coast of Patasan, I saw it nearly two years afterwards, is straight and somber, and faces a misty ocean. Red trails are seen like cataracts of rust streaming under the dark green foliage of bushes and creepers clothing the low cliffs. Swampy plains open out at the mouth of rivers, with a view of jagged blue peaks beyond the vast forests. In the offing, a chain of islands, dark, crumbling shapes, stand out in the everlasting sunlit haze like the remnants of a wall breached by the sea. There is a village of fisher folk at the mouth of the Batu Kring branch of the estuary. The river, which has been closed so long, was open then, and Stein's little schooner, in which I had my passage, worked her way up in three tides without being exposed to a fusillade from irresponsive parties. Such a state of affairs belonged already to ancient history, if I could believe the elderly headman of the fishing village, who came on board to act as a sort of pilot. He talked to me, the second white man he had ever seen, with confidence, and most of his talk was about the first white man he had ever seen. He called him Tuan Jim, and the tone of his references was made remarkable by a strange mixture of familiarity and awe. They, in the village, were under the Lord's special protection, which showed that Jim bore no grudge. If he had warned me that I would hear of him, it was perfectly true. I was hearing of him. There was already a story that the tide had turned two hours before its time to help him on his journey up the river. The talkative old man himself had steered the canoe and had marveled at the phenomenon. Moreover, all the glory was in his family. His son and his son-in-law had paddled, but they were only youths without experience who did not notice the speed of the canoe till he pointed out to them the amazing fact. Jim's coming to that fishing village was a blessing. But to them, as to many of us, the blessing came heralded by terrors. So many generations had been released since the last white man had visited the river that the very tradition had been lost. The appearance of the being that descended upon them and demanded inflexibly to be taken up to Patasan was discomposing. His insistence was alarming, his generosity more than suspicious. It was an unheard-of request. There was no precedent. What would the Raja say to this? What would he do to them? The best part of the night was spent in consultation, but the immediate risk from the anger of that strange man seemed so great that at last a cranky dugout was got ready. The women shrieked with grief as it put off. A fearless old hag cursed the stranger. He sat in it, as I've told you, on his tin box, nursing the unloaded revolver on his lap. He sat with precaution, than which there is nothing more fatiguing, and thus entered the land he was destined to fill with the fame of his virtues, from the blue peaks inland to the white ribbon of surf on the coast. At the first bend he lost sight of the sea with its laboring waves forever rising, sinking, and vanishing to rise again, the very image of struggling mankind, and faced the immovable forests rooted deep in the soil, soaring towards the sunshine, everlasting in the shadowy might of their tradition, like life itself and his opportunity sat veiled by his side like an eastern bride, waiting to be uncovered by the hand of the master. He, too, was the heir of a shadowy and mighty tradition. He told me, however, that he had never in his life felt so depressed and tired as in that canoe. All the movement he dared to allow himself was to reach, as it were by stealth, after the shell of half a cocoanut floating between his shoes and bail some of the water out with a carefully restrained action. 
He discovered how hard the lid of a Block 10 case was to sit upon. He had heroic health, but several times during that journey he experienced fits of giddiness, and between whiles he speculated hazily as to the size of the blister the sun was raising on his back. For amusement, he tried by looking ahead to decide whether the muddy object he saw lying on the water's edge was a log of wood or an alligator. Only very soon he had to give that up. No fun in it. Always alligator. One of them flopped into the river and all but capsized the canoe. But this excitement was over directly. Then, in a long, empty reach, he was very grateful to a troop of monkeys who came right down on the bank and made an insulting hullabaloo on his passage. Such was the way in which he was approaching greatness as genuine as any man ever achieved. Principally, he longed for sunset, and meantime, his three paddlers were preparing to put into execution their plan of delivering him up to the Raja. "'I suppose I must have been stupid with fatigue, or perhaps I did doze off for a time,' he said. The first thing he knew was his canoe coming to the bank. He became instantaneously aware of the forest having been left behind, of the first houses being visible higher up, of a stockade on his left, and of his boatmen leaping out together upon a low point of land and taking to their heels. Instinctively, he leaped out after them. At first he thought himself deserted for some inconceivable reason, but he heard excited shouts, a gate swung open, and a lot of people poured out, making towards him. At the same time, a boat full of armed men appeared on the river and came alongside his empty canoe, thus shutting off his retreat. I was too startled to be quite cool, don't you know? And if that revolver had been loaded, I would have shot somebody, perhaps two, three bodies. But that would have been the end of me. But it wasn't. Why not? I asked. Well, I couldn't fight the whole population, and I wasn't coming to them as if I were afraid of my life, he said, with just a faint hint of his stubborn sulkiness in the glance he gave me. I refrained from pointing out to him that they could not have known the chambers were actually empty. He had to satisfy himself in his own way. Anyhow, it wasn't, he repeated good-humouredly. And so I just stood still and asked them what was the matter. That seemed to strike them dumb. I saw some of these thieves going off with my box. That long-legged old scoundrel Kasim, I'll show him to you tomorrow, ran out fussing to me about the Raja wanting to see me. I said, all right. I too wanted to see the Raja, and I simply walked in through the gate and... and here I am. He laughed, and then with unexpected emphasis, "'And do you know what's the best in it?' he asked. "'I'll tell you. It's the knowledge that had I been wiped out in this place, that would have been the loser.' He spoke thus to me before his house on that evening I've mentioned, after we had watched the moon float away above the chasm between the hills like an ascending spirit out of a grave. Its sheen descended, cold and pale, like the ghost of dead sunlight. There is something haunting in the light of the moon.' It has all the dispassionateness of a disembodied soul, and something of its inconceivable mystery. It is to our sunshine, which, say what you like, is all we have to live by, what the echo is to the sound, misleading and confusing whether the note be mocking or sad. It robs all forms of matter, which, after all, is our domain, of their substance, and gives a sinister reality to shadows alone. And the shadows were very real around us, but Jim by my side looked very stalwart, as though nothing, not even the occult power of moonlight, could rob him of his reality in my eyes. Perhaps, indeed, nothing could touch him since he had survived the assault of the dark powers. All was silent, all was still. Even on the river the moonbeams slept as on a pool. It was the moment of high water, a moment of immobility that accentuated the utter isolation of this lost corner of the earth the houses crowding along the wide, shining sweep without ripple or glitter, stepping into the water in a line of jostling, vague, grey, silvery forms mingled with black masses of shadow, were like a spectral herd of shapeless creatures pressing forward to drink in a spectral and lifeless stream. Here and there a red gleam twinkled within the bamboo walls, warm, like a living spark, significant of human affections, of shelter, of repose. He confessed to me that he often watched these tiny warm gleams go out one by one, that he loved to see people go to sleep under his eyes, confident in the security of tomorrow. "'Peaceful here, eh?' he asked. He was not eloquent, but there was a deep meaning in the words that followed. "'Look at these houses. 
There's not one where I am not trusted. Jove, I told you I would hang on. Ask any man, woman, or child. He paused. Well, I am all right, anyhow. I observed quickly that he had found that out in the end. I had been sure of it, I added. He shook his head. Were you? He pressed my arm lightly above the elbow. Well, then, you were right. There was elation and pride. There was awe, almost, in that low exclamation. Jove, he cried, only think what it is to me. Again he pressed my arm. And you asked me whether I thought of leaving. Good God, I want to leave, especially now after what you told me of Mr. Stein's. Leave, why? That's what I was afraid of. It would have been, it would have been harder than dying. No, on my word. Don't laugh. I must feel, every day, every time I open my eyes, that I am trusted, that nobody has a right. Don't you know? Leave. For where? What for? To get what? I had told him, indeed it was the main object of my visit, that it was Stein's intention to present him at once with the house and the stock of trading goods on certain easy conditions which would make the transaction perfectly regular and valid. He began to snort and plunge at first. Confound your delicacy, I shouted. It isn't Stein at all. He's giving you what you had made for yourself. And in any case, keep your remarks for McNeil when you meet him in the other world. I hope it won't happen soon. He had to give in to my arguments, because all his conquests, the trust, the fame, the friendships, the love, all these things that made him master had made him a captive, too. He looked with an owner's eye at the peace of the evening, at the river, at the houses, at the everlasting life of the forests, at the life of the old mankind, at the secrets of the land, at the pride of his own heart. But it was they that possessed him, and made him their own to the innermost thought, to the slightest stir of blood, to his last breath. It was something to be proud of. I, too, was proud, for him, if not so certain of the fabulous value of the bargain. It was wonderful. It was not so much of his fearlessness that I thought. It is strange how little account I took of it, as if it had been something too conventional to be at the root of the matter. No, I was more struck by the other gifts he had displayed. He had proved his grasp of the unfamiliar situation, his intellectual alertness in that field of thought. There was his readiness, too. Amazing. And all this had come to him in a manner like keen scent to a well-bred hound. He was not eloquent, but there was a dignity in this constitutional reticence. There was a high seriousness in his stammerings. He had still his old trick of stubborn blushing. Now and then, though, a word, a sentence, would escape him that showed how deeply, how solemnly, he felt about that work which had given him the certitude of rehabilitation. That is why he seemed to love the land and the people with a sort of fierce egoism, with a contemptuous tenderness. Chapter 25 This is where I was a prisoner for three days, he murmured to me. It was on the occasion of our visit to the Rajah, while we were making our way slowly through a kind of awestruck riot of dependence across Tunku Alang's courtyard. Filthy place, isn't it? And I couldn't get anything to eat, either, unless I made a row about it. And then it was only a small plate of rice and a fried fish not much bigger than a stickleback. Confound them! Jove! I've been hungry prowling inside the stinking enclosure with some of these vagabonds shoving their mugs right under my nose. I had given up that famous revolver of yours at the first demand. Glad to get rid of the bally thing. Looked like a fool walking around with an empty shooting iron in my hand. At that moment, we came into the presence, and he became unflinchingly grave and complimentary with his late captor. Oh, magnificent. I want to laugh when I think of it. But I was impressed, too. The old, disreputable Tunku Along could not help showing his fear. He was no hero for all the tales of his hot youth he was fond of telling. And at the same time, there was a wistful confidence in his manner towards his late prisoner. Note, even where he would be most hated, he was still trusted. Jim, as far as I could follow the conversation, was improving the occasion by the delivery of a lecture. Some poor villagers had been waylaid and robbed while on their way to Doraman's house with a few pieces of gum or beeswax which they wished to exchange for rice. It was Doraman who was a thief, burst out the Raja. A shaking fury seemed to enter that old frail body. He writhed weirdly on his mat, gesticulating with his hands and feet, tossing the tangled strings of his mop, an impotent incarnation of rage, 
There were staring eyes and dropping jaws all around us. Jim began to speak. Resolutely, coolly, and for some time he enlarged upon the text that no man should be prevented from getting his food and his children's food honestly. The other sat like a tailor at his board, one palm on each knee, his head low, and fixing Jim through the gray hair that fell over his very eyes. When Jim had done, there was a great stillness. Nobody seemed to breathe even. No one made a sound till the old Rajah sighed faintly and looked up, with a toss of his head, said quickly, "'You hear, my people, no more of these little games.' This decree was received in profound silence. A rather heavy man, evidently in a position of confidence, with intelligent eyes, a bony, broad, very dark face, and a cheerily of officious manner—I learned later on he was the executioner—presented to us two cups of coffee on a brass tray, which he took from the hands of an inferior attendant. "'You needn't drink,' muttered Jim very rapidly. I didn't perceive the meaning at first, and only looked at him. He took a good sip and sat composedly, holding the saucer in his left hand. In a moment, I felt excessively annoyed. "'Why the devil?' I whispered, smiling at him amiably. "'Do you expose me to such a stupid risk?' I drank, of course. There was nothing for it, while he gave no sign, and almost immediately afterwards we took our leave. While we were going down the courtyard to our boat, escorted by the intelligent and cheery executioner, Jim said he was very sorry. It was the barest chance, of course. Personally, he thought nothing of poison, the remotest chance. He was, he assured me, considered to be infinitely more useful than dangerous, and so... But the Raja is afraid of you abominably. Anybody can see that. I argued with, I own, a certain peevishness, and all the time watching anxiously for the first twist of some sort of ghastly colic. I was awfully disgusted. If I am to do any good here and preserve my position, he said, taking his seat by my side in the boat, I must stand the risk. I take it once every month at least. Many people trust me to do that, for them. Afraid of me, that's just it. Most likely he is afraid of me because I am not afraid of his coffee. Then, showing me a place on the north front of the stockade where the pointed tops of several stakes were broken, this is where I leaped over on my third day in Patazon. They haven't put new stakes there yet. Good leap, eh? A moment later we passed the mouth of a muddy creek. This is my second leap. I had a bit of a run and took this one flying, but fell short thought I would leave my skin there, lost my shoes struggling, and all the time I was thinking to myself how beastly it would be to get a jab with a bolly-long spear while sticking in the mud like this. I remember how sick I felt wriggling in that slime. I mean, really sick. As if I had bitten something rotten. That's how it was, and the opportunity ran by his side, leaped over the gap, floundered in the mud, still veiled. The unexpectedness of his coming was the only thing, you understand, that saved him from being at once dispatched with Chris's and flung into the river. They had him, but it was like getting hold of an apparition, a wraith, a portent. What did it mean? What to do with it? Was it too late to conciliate him? Hadn't he better be killed without more delay? But what would happen then? Wretched old along went nearly mad with apprehension and through the difficulty of making up his mind. Several times the council was broken up, and the advisers made a break helter-skelter for the door and out onto the veranda. One, it is said, even jumped down to the ground, fifteen feet, I should judge, and broke his leg. The royal governor of Patasan had bizarre mannerisms, and one of them was to introduce boastful rhapsodies into every arduous discussion, when, getting gradually excited, he would end by flying off his perch with a chris in his hand. But, barring such interruptions, the deliberations upon Jim's fate went on night and day. Meanwhile, he wandered about the courtyard, shunned by some, glared at by others, but watched by all, and practically at the mercy of the first casual ragamuffin with a chopper in there. He took possession of a small tumble-down shed to sleep in. The effluvia of filth and rotten matter incommoded him greatly. It seems he had not lost his appetite, though, because he told me he had been hungry all the blessed time. Now and then, some fussy ass deputed from the council room would come out running to him, and in honeyed tones would administer amazing interrogatories. Were the Dutch coming to take the country? Would the white man like to go back down the river? What was the object of coming to such a miserable country? The Raja wanted to know whether the white man could repair a watch. 
they did actually bring out to him a nickel clock of new england make and out of sheer unbearable boredom he busied himself in trying to get the alarum to work it was apparently when thus occupied in his shed that the true perception of his extreme peril dawned upon him he dropped the thing he says like a hot potato and walked out hastily without the slightest idea of what he would or indeed could do he only knew that the position was intolerable he strolled aimlessly beyond a sort of ramshackle little granary on posts, and his eyes fell on the broken stakes of the palisade. And then, he says, at once, without any mental process, as it were, without any stir of emotion, he set about his escape as if executing a plan matured for a month. He walked off carelessly to give himself a good run, and when he faced about there was some dignitary, with two spearmen in attendance, close at his elbow ready with a question. He started off from under his very nose, went over like a bird, and landed on the other side with a fall that jarred all his bones and seemed to split his head. He picked himself up instantly. He never thought of anything at the time. All he could remember, he said, was a great yell. The first houses of Patasan were before him four hundred yards away. He saw the creek, and as it were mechanically put on more pace. The earth seemed fairly to fly backwards under his feet. He took off from the last dry spot, felt himself flying through the air, felt himself, without any shock, planted upright in an extremely soft and sticky mud bank. It was only when he tried to move his legs and found he couldn't that, in his own words, he came to himself. He began to think of the bolly long spears. As a matter of fact, considering that the people inside the stockade had to run to the gate, then get down to the landing place, get into boats, and pull round a point of land, he had more advance than he imagined. Besides, it being low water, the creek was without water, you couldn't call it dry, and practically he was safe for a time from everything but a very long shot, perhaps. The higher firm ground was about six feet in front of him. I thought I would have to die there all the same, he said. He reached and grabbed desperately with his hands, and only succeeded in gathering a horrible, cold, shiny heap of slime against his breast, up to his very chin. It seemed to him he was burying himself alive, and then he struck out madly, scattering the mud with his fists. It fell on his head, on his face, over his eyes, into his mouth. He told me that he remembered suddenly the courtyard, as you remember a place where you had been very happy years ago. He longed, so he said, to be back there again, mending the clock. Mending the clock. That was the idea. He made efforts, tremendous sobbing, gasping efforts, efforts that seemed to burst his eyeballs in their sockets and make him blind, and culminating into one mighty supreme effort in the darkness to crack the earth asunder, to throw it off his limbs, and he felt himself creeping feebly up the bank. He lay full length on the firm ground and saw the light, the sky. Then, as a sort of happy thought, the notion came to him that he would go to sleep. He will have it that he did actually go to sleep, that he slept, perhaps for a minute, perhaps for twenty seconds, or only for one second, but he recollects distinctly the violent convulsive start of awakening. He remained lying still for a while, and then he arose muddy from head to foot and stood there, thinking he was alone of his kind for hundreds of miles, alone with no help, no sympathy, no pity to expect from anyone like a hunted animal. The first houses were not more than twenty yards from him, and it was the desperate screaming of a frightened woman trying to carry off a child that started him again. He pelted straight on in his socks, but plastered with filth out of all semblance to a human being. He traversed more than half the length of the settlement. The nimbler women fled right and left, the slower men just dropped whatever they had in their hands and remained petrified with dropping jaws. He was a flying terror. He says he noticed the little children trying to run for life, falling on their little stomachs and kicking. He swerved between two houses up a slope, clambered in desperation over a barricade of felled trees there wasn't a week without some fight in Patasan at that time, burst through a fence with a maize patch where a scared boy flung a stick at him, blundered upon a path, and ran all at once into the arms of several startled men. He just had breath enough to gasp out, Doraman! Doraman! He remembers being half-carried, half-rushed to the top of the slope, and in a vast enclosure with palms and fruit trees being run up to a large man sitting massively in a chair in the midst of the greatest possible commotion and excitement. He fumbled in mud and clothes to produce the ring, 
and, finding himself suddenly on his back, wondered who had knocked him down. They had simply let him go, don't you know, but he couldn't stand. At the foot of the slope random shots were fired, and above the roofs of the settlement there rose a dull roar of amazement. But he was safe. Dorman's people were barricading the gate and pouring water down his throat. Dorman's old wife, full of business and commiseration, was issuing shrill orders to her girls. The old woman, he said softly, made a to-do over me as if I had been her own son. They put me into an immense bed, her state bed, and she ran in and out wiping her eyes to give me pats on the back. I must have been a pitiful object. I just lay there like a log for I don't know how long. He seemed to have a great liking for Doraman's old wife. She, on her side, had taken a motherly fancy to him. She had a round, nut-brown, soft face, all fine wrinkles, large, bright red lips. She chewed beetle assiduously, and screwed up, winking, benevolent eyes. She was constantly in movement, scolding busily and ordering unceasingly a troop of young women with clear brown faces and big grave eyes, her daughters, her servants, her slave girls. You know how it is in these households. It's generally impossible to tell the difference. She was very spare, and even her ample outer garment, fastened in front with jeweled clasps, had somehow a skimpy effect. Her dark bare feet were thrust into yellow straw slippers of Chinese make. I have seen her myself flitting about with her extremely thick, long, gray hair falling about her shoulders. She uttered homely, shrewd sayings, was of noble birth, and was eccentric and arbitrary. In the afternoon she would sit in a very roomy armchair opposite her husband, gazing steadily through a wide opening in the wall which gave an extensive view of the settlement and the river. She invariably tucked up her feet under her, but old Doraman sat squarely, sat imposingly as a mountain sits on a plain. He was only of the Nakoda or merchant class, but the respect shown to him and the dignity of his bearing were very striking. He was the chief of the second power in Patasan. The immigrants from Celebes, about sixty families that, with dependents and so on, could muster some two hundred men wearing the chris, had elected him years ago for their head. The men of that race are intelligent, enterprising, revengeful, but with a more frank courage than the other Malays, and restless under oppression. They formed the party opposed to the Raja. Of course, the quarrels were for trade. This was the primary cause of faction fights, of the sudden outbreaks that would fill this or that part of the settlement with smoke, flame, the noise of shots and shrieks. Villages were burnt, men were dragged into the Raja's stockade to be killed or tortured for the crime of trading with anybody else but himself. Only a day or two before Jim's arrival, several heads of households in the very fishing village that was afterwards taken under his especial protection had been driven over the cliffs by a party of the Raja's spearmen, on suspicion of having been collecting edible bird's nests for a Celebes trader. Raja Alang pretended to be the only trader in his country, and the penalty for the breach of the monopoly was death. But his idea of trading was indistinguishable from the commonest forms of robbery. His cruelty and rapacity had no other bounds than his cowardice, and he was afraid of the organized power of the Celebes men. Only, till Jim came, he was not afraid enough to keep quiet. He struck at them through his subjects, and thought himself pathetically in the right. The situation was complicated by a wandering stranger, an Arab half-breed who, I believe, on purely religious grounds, had incited the tribes in the interior, the bush folk, as Jim himself called them, to rise, and had established himself in a fortified camp on the summit of one of the twin hills. He hung over the town of Patasan like a hawk over a poultry yard, but he devastated the open country. Whole villages, deserted, rotted on their blackened posts over the banks of clear streams, dropping piecemeal into the water the grass of their walls, the leaves of their roofs, with a curious effect of natural decay, as if they had been a form of vegetation stricken by a blight at its very root. The two parties in Patasan were not sure which one this partisan most desired to plunder. The Raja intrigued with him feebly. Some of the Budgist settlers, weary with endless insecurity, were half inclined to call him in, the younger spirits amongst them, chaffing, advised to get Sharif Ali with his wild men to drive the Raja along out of the country. Dora Amin restrained them with difficulty. He was growing old, and, though his influence had not diminished, the situation was getting beyond him. This was the state of affairs when Jim, bolting from the Raja's stockade, 
appeared before the chief of the Budgess, produced the ring, and was received, in a manner of speaking, into the heart of the community. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Maine Maritime Academy. Hi, Lauren. Welcome back. Hello, Anne. It's lovely to be here on this very hot summer day. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, kind of scorching here. So I imagine that you have something for us today. I imagine you are correct. What do you have? So I went back to our ebook collection for another selection. Today, we're just looking at one chapter from one of the ebooks that we can access through Maine Maritime's uh, online resources. And the book is called Joseph Conrad and the Anxiety of Knowledge. Ooh. Yeah, um, the author is William Friedman, and this book is from 2014, so it's fairly recent as Conrad scholarship goes. Yeah, that's definitely, we've been moving rapidly through the decades over the past few weeks on the things that we're recommending here. Yeah, and you know, we might jump back to some more older scholarship at some point, but I like that we have some fairly recent uh, content to, to look at in our resources. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about this book and the chapter that you've selected. Yeah, so the chapter is called The Soft Spot, Lord Jim. Um, but I want to just, as I was looking through here, I saw um, the one of the quotes in the epigraph here. I just wanted to share it. It's not really relevant to this chapter specifically, but I just wanted to, to share this Conrad quote. It's from a letter that he wrote in 1898. And he said, what makes mankind tragic is not that they are the victims of nature, it is that they are conscious of it. Oh. So there's a, <laughs> so talk about the anxiety of knowledge. Like that really beautifully encapsulates, I, I don't know. It, it's a little dark, I think, in the moment that we're living through right now, you know, talking about being victims of nature might hit a little too close to home. I apologize <laughs> if I'm depressing any of our listeners, but I just, I, I could not scroll past that without commenting. Well, and I think that he was probably not alone in his time period and maybe many other time periods in being um, really aware of man versus wilderness and man in wilderness and consciousness of the wilderness or nature. Um, so that's really uh, descriptive for him. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, from, from just a little bit before Lord Jim was published. So I'm sure Lord Jim was already in his mind in some form. Um, I have to check the dates there, but I think, uh, I think that's accurate. Yeah. So tell me more about the chapter then. Yeah. So again, um, this chapter is called The Soft Spot. And I'm going to just read the first sentence, um, which is that while some earlier readers claimed to find coherent meaning in Lord Jim, the novel has become, as one recent critic put it, famously ambiguous, read with increasing frequency as a paradigmatic postmodernist construction whose only meaning rests in its steadfast refusal to yield it. I have to say that's a bit what I've been feeling as I go through and read this book. It is so hard to figure out what I actually think about all of these characters because they're all likable but also really not likable and they seem like they're doing their best but then like not at all so it's that really fits isn't it comforting to know that you know maybe that's by design and you know I I like to you know uh, yeah um I like to think that that's that's something that's very intentional here. And I think that, the, you know, I'm not a Conrad scholar, but the little I do know of Conrad's writing is that, like, he's too good for that to be an accident, right? <laughs> well, especially when, by design, we see these nested layers of unreliable narrators. You know, what would the result be other than ambiguity and uncertainty throughout the entire novel? Yes. And I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, the author is, is really echoing or, you know, you're echoing what the author said. Um, 
And, you know, he's talking about the pattern of narrators within narrators deprives the reader of any solid ground to stand on and creates a whirlpool of repetitions uh, that prevent the reader from deciding among alternative possibilities and discovering the why behind the events. Uh, so yeah, well, I love that those feelings that you get as a reader are often accurate. They give you something important to reflect on. So as I'm reading and feeling confused and uncertain, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a bad reader. It might mean that he's just that good a writer, that I am feeling that because I should be feeling that. Right. And, you know, we've, we've talked in, um, you know, in other conversations that you and I have had about, you know, the, the reasons we read and how sometimes, you know, you don't go to a book for easy answers or for, you know, nice stories that have um, like predictable conclusions. And sometimes you do, and that's completely fine. I think that comfort food is amazing and that's certainly a valid reason to read, but this is a very different experience with this novel. Yeah, there's a lot here and, you know, I'm getting a lot of joy from the language and the vocabulary and how he puts a sentence together and how he's stringing together these narrators. But it does give a lot of, you know, very complex food for thought um, that is a real joy to kind of chew over and think about, um, even though it's challenging. And, you know, like you said, it's not necessarily comfort food, but it is awfully enjoyable. Yeah. And so what are, what, um, sorry, what Friedman here is um, talking about, you know, he's kind of saying that, like, if you just stop and notice that frustration, you know, you're not necessarily getting the full benefit of investigating what Conrad's doing here. And so this chapter talks about, you know, exactly what we can find if we really explore that uncertainty and, you know, there's there's a lot here. This is, you know, pretty dense literary scholarship, but I think it's really interesting. Well, and I like that with the scholarly writing that we're um, highlighting in these sessions um, in the middle of each episode is that you can notice that it seems like there's a lot there in a book, but you don't have to know exactly what to do with that or where to go with that. You can kind of dip into these articles and these books of people who've really put in the work and get the benefit of that by reading it and considering it. Um, and you don't you don't all have to become Conrad scholars um, as much as you certainly can and contribute that way. Um, but you can enjoy Conrad and you can get the benefit of Conrad scholarship without, you know, investing your whole life in that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, Friedman is describing Lord Jim here, and he says that it's a study in invasion on three causally connected and mutually reflected levels, subject, narration, and total construct. Uh, so he goes on to give a lot of examples of this, and he, he talks about some of the things that, something that actually I think we touched on previously, which is the creation of a fictional um, escape for Lord Jim, um, a fictional, you know, land for him to go to. And we kind of talked about that as being a problem. And there's a discussion here about, you know, why that might have been necessary from an artistic standpoint that I mm -hmm. think is, is fascinating and, you know, certainly um, refers back to something that we had talked about previously. There's um, a discussion of the characterization of women and what they might mean here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot in here and it's, it's a really fascinating look at, you know, what we've already, you know, gotten the sense is a really layered, uh, complicated novel. So I hope there's something useful here for some of our listeners. Absolutely. Well, and, um, it, you'd mentioned earlier that this is available through our databases. So certainly our listeners who, um, we know from our campus we'll have access to that, but um, of course the full citation will be included in the show notes. So anyone who wants to take a look at this will be able to um, use that citation to get their hands on it. Um, and certainly going to your local public library or academic library, they're likely going to be able to help you track that down and get your hands on that. Wonderful. 
Well, thank you so much for bringing us yet another interesting piece of writing about this writing. Um, and I, I like how um, we've been able to think a little bit about ourselves as readers and why we're reading this. It's uh, it's great. And I think that, you know, the podcast nature of, you know, listening to listening to something with those spaces in between, you know, if you are following along with this in real time and having that opportunity to reflect, um, yeah, that's a really interesting way to space out your reading of something and give yourself some thinking time in between. Um, and I hope that, yeah, I hope these articles add to that in, you know, giving you some time to pause and consider because again, when you're reading something this complicated, that might be, um, that might be a good way to go about it is giving yourself some breathing room to really take in what you're what you're reading. Yeah, I think that's really true. And taking our time with something fits really well in the maritime context, too. They've got a lot of time um, at sea and kind of have that breathing space in the brain um, for those who dive into literature during their time at sea. So I, I really appreciate that thought um, and I look forward to the next thing that you bring us next week. Thanks Anne, I appreciate it. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 26 Doraman was one of the most remarkable men of his race I had ever seen. His bulk for a Malay was immense, but he did not look merely fat. He looked imposing, monumental. This motionless body, clad in rich stuffs, colored silks, gold embroideries, this huge head enfolded in a red and gold handkerchief, the flat, big, round face, wrinkled, furrowed, with two semicircular heavy folds staring on each side of the wide, fierce nostrils, and enclosing a thick-lipped mouth, the throat like a bull, the vast corrugated brow overhanging the staring, proud eyes, made a whole that, once seen, can never be forgotten. His impassive repose, he seldom stirred a limb when once he sat down, was like a display of dignity. He was never known to raise his voice. It was a hoarse and powerful murmur, slightly veiled as if heard from a distance. When he walked, two short, sturdy young fellows, naked to the waist in white sarongs and with black skull caps on the backs of their heads, sustained his elbows. They would ease him down and stand behind his chair till he wanted to rise, when he would turn his head slowly, as if with difficulty, to the right and to the left, and then they would catch him under the armpits and help him up. For all that, there was nothing of a cripple about him. On the contrary, all his ponderous movements were like manifestations of a mighty deliberate force. It was generally believed he consulted his wife as to public affairs, but nobody, as far as I know, had ever heard them exchange a single word. When they sat in state by the wide opening, it was in silence. They could see below them in the declining light the vast expanse of the forest country, a dark sleeping sea of somber green undulating as far as the violet and purple range of mountains, the shining sinuosity of the river like an immense letter S of beaten silver, the brown ribbon of houses following the sweep of both banks, overtopped by the twin hills uprising above the nearer treetops. They were wonderfully contrasted. She, light, delicate, spare, quick, a little witch-like, with a touch of motherly fussiness in her repose. He, facing her, immense and heavy, like a figure of a man roughly fashioned of stone, with something magnanimous and ruthless in his immobility. The son of these old people was a most distinguished youth. They had him late in life. Perhaps he was not really so young as he looked, Four or five and twenty is not so young when a man is already a father of a family at eighteen. When he entered the large room, lined and carpeted with fine mats, and with a high ceiling of white sheeting, where the couple sat in state surrounded by a most deferential retinue, he would make his way straight to Doraman, to kiss his hand, which the other abandoned to him majestically, and then would step across to stand by his mother's chair. I suppose I may say they idolized him, but I never caught them giving him an overt glance. Those, it is true, were public functions. The room was generally thronged. The solemn formality of greetings and leave-takings, the profound respect expressed in gestures on the faces in low whispers, is simply indescribable. It's well worth seeing, Jim had assured me while we were crossing the river on our way back. 
They are like people in a book, aren't they? he said triumphantly. And Dane Warris, their son, is the best friend, barring you, I ever had. What Mr. Stein would call a good war comrade. I was in luck. Jove, I was in luck when I tumbled amongst them at my last gasp. He meditated with bowed head, then rousing himself, he added, Of course, I didn't go to sleep over it, but... He paused again. It seemed to come to me, he murmured. All at once, I saw what I had to do. There was no doubt that it had come to him, and it had come through war, too, as is natural, since this power that came to him was the power to make peace. It is in this sense alone that might so often is right. You must not think he had seen his way at once. When he arrived, the Budges community was in a most critical position. They were afraid. They were all afraid, he said to me, each man afraid for himself. Well, I could see as plain as possible that they must do something at once, if they did not want to go under one after another, what between the Raja and that vagabond sheriff. But to see that was nothing. When he got his idea, he had to drive it into reluctant minds, through the bulwarks of fear, of selfishness. He drove it in at last. And that was nothing. He had to devise the means. He devised them, an audacious plan, and his task was only half done. He had to inspire with his own confidence a lot of people who had hidden and absurd reasons to hang back. He had to conciliate imbecile jealousies and argue away all sorts of senseless mistrusts. Without the weight of Doriman's authority and his son's fiery enthusiasm, he would have failed. Dane Warris, the distinguished youth, was the first to believe in him. Theirs was one of those strange, profound, rare friendships between brown and white, in which the very difference of race seems to draw two human beings closer by some mystic element of sympathy. Of Dane Warris, his own people said with pride that he knew how to fight like a white man. This was true. He had that sort of courage, the courage in the open, I may say, but he also had a European mind. You meet them sometimes like that, and are surprised to discover unexpectedly a familiar turn of thought, an obscured vision, a tenacity of purpose, a touch of altruism. Of small stature but admirably well-proportioned, Dane Warris had a proud carriage, a polished, easy bearing, a temperament like a clear flame. His dusky face, with big black eyes, was in action expressive and in repose thoughtful. He was of a silent disposition. A firm glance, an ironic smile, a courteous deliberation of manner seemed to hint at great reserves of intelligence and power. Such beings open to the western eye, so often concerned with mere surfaces, the hidden possibilities of races and lands over which hangs the mystery of unrecorded ages. He not only trusted Jim, he understood him, I firmly believe. I speak of him because he had captivated me, his, if I may say so, his caustic placidity, and at the same time his intelligent sympathy with Jim's aspirations, appealed to me. I seemed to behold the very origin of friendship. If Jim took the lead, the other had captivated his leader. In fact, Jim the leader was a captive in every sense. The land, the people, the friendship, the love, were like the jealous guardians of his body. Every day added a link to the fetters of that strange freedom. I felt convinced of it, as from day to day I learned more of the story. The story. Haven't I heard the story? I've heard it on the march, in camp. He made me scour the country after invisible game. I've listened to a good part of it on one of the twin summits after climbing the last hundred feet or so on my hands and knees. Our escort, we had volunteer followers from village to village, had camped meantime on a bit of level ground halfway up the slope, and in the still breathless evening the smell of wood smoke reached our nostrils from below with the penetrating delicacy of some choice scent. Voices also ascended, wonderful in their distinct and immaterial clearness. Jim sat on a trunk of a felled tree, and pulling out his pipe, began to smoke. A new growth of grass and bushes was springing up. There were traces of an earthwork under a mass of thorny twigs. It all started from here, he said, after a long and meditative silence. On the other hill, two hundred yards across a somber precipice, I saw a line of high blackened stakes, showing here and there ruinously the remnants of Sharif Ali's impregnable camp. But it had to be taken, though. That had been his idea. He had mounted Doriman's old ordnance on top of that hill, two rusty iron seven-pounders, a lot of small brass cannon, currency cannon, 
but if the brass guns represent wealth, they can also, when crammed recklessly to the muzzle, send a solid shot to some little distance. The thing was to get them up there. He showed me where he had fastened the cables, explained how he had improvised a rude capstan out of a hollowed log turning upon a pointed stake, indicated with the bowl of his pipe the outline of the earthwork. The last hundred feet of the ascent had been the most difficult. He had made himself responsible for success on his own head. He had induced the war party to work hard all night. Big fires lighted at intervals blazed all down the slope. But up here, he explained, the hoisting gang had to fly around in the dark. From the top he saw men moving on the hillside like ants at work. He himself on that night had kept on rushing down and climbing up like a squirrel, directing, encouraging, watching all along the line. Old Dorman had himself carried up the hill in his armchair. They put him down on the level place upon the slope, and he sat there in the light of one of the big fires. "'Amazing old chap, real old chieftain,' said Jim. "'With his little fierce eyes, a pair of immense flintlock pistols on his knees. Magnificent things, ebony, silver-mounted, with beautiful locks and a caliber like an old blunderbuss. A present from Stein, it seems, in exchange for that ring, you know. Used to belong to good old McNeil. God only knows how he came by them.' There he sat, moving neither hand nor foot, a flame of dry brushwood behind him, and lots of people rushing about, shouting and pulling round him. The most solemn, imposing old chap you can imagine. He wouldn't have had much chance if Sharif Ali had let his infernal crew loose at us and stampeded my lot, eh? Anyhow, he had come up there to die if anything went wrong. No mistake, Jove. It thrilled me to see him there, like a rock. But the Sharif must have thought us mad, and never troubled to come and see how we got on. Nobody believed it could be done. Why, I think the very chaps who pulled and shoved and sweated over it did not believe it could be done. Upon my word, I don't think they did. He stood erect, the smoldering briarwood in his clutch, with a smile on his lips and a sparkle in his boyish eyes. I sat on the stump of a tree at his feet, and below us stretched the land, the great expanse of the forests, somber under the sunshine, rolling like a sea, with glints of winding rivers, the grey spots of villages, and here and there a clearing, like an islet of light amongst the dark waves of continuous treetops. A brooding gloom lay over this vast and monotonous landscape. The light fell on to it as if into an abyss. The land devoured the sunshine. Only far off, along the coast, the empty ocean, smooth and polished within the faint haze, seemed to rise up to the sky in a wall of steel. And there I was with him, high in the sunshine on top of that historic hill of his. He dominated the forest, the secular gloom, the old mankind. He was like a figure set up on a pedestal to represent in his persistent youth the power, and perhaps the virtues, of races that never grow old, that have emerged from the gloom. I don't know why he should always have appeared to me symbolic. Perhaps this is the real cause of my interest in his fate. I don't know whether it was exactly fair to him to remember the incident which had given a new direction to his life, but at that moment I remembered very distinctly. It was like a shadow in the light. Chapter 27 Already the legend had gifted him with supernatural powers. Yes, it was said, there had been many ropes cunningly disposed, and a strange contrivance that turned by the efforts of many men and each gun went up tearing slowly through the bushes like a wild pig rooting its way in the undergrowth, but—and the wisest shook their heads. There is something occult in all this, no doubt, for what is the strength of ropes and of men's arms? There is a rebellious soul in things which must be overcome by powerful charms and incantations. Thus old Sora, a very respectable householder in Patisan, with whom I had a quiet chat one evening— However, Sora was a professional sorcerer, also, who attended all the rice sowings and reapings for miles around for the purpose of subduing the stubborn souls of things. This occupation he seemed to think a most arduous one, and perhaps the souls of things are more stubborn than the souls of men. As to the simple folk of outlying villages, they believed and said, as the most natural thing in the world, that Jim had carried the guns up the hill on his back, two at a time. This would make Jim stamp his foot in vexation and exclaim with an exasperated little laugh, What can you do with such silly beggars? They will sit up half the night talking bally rot, and the greater the lie, the more they seem to like it. 
You could trace the subtle influence of his surroundings in this irritation. It was part of his captivity. The earnestness of his denials was amusing, and at last I said, My dear fellow, you don't suppose I believe this? He looked at me quite startled. Well, no, I suppose not, he said, and burst into a Homeric peal of laughter. Well, anyhow, the guns were there, and went off altogether at sunrise. Jove, you should have seen the splinters fly, he cried. By his side, Dane Warris, listening with a quiet smile, dropped his eyelids and shuffled his feet a little. It appears that the success in mounting the guns had given Jim's people such a feeling of confidence that he ventured to leave the battery under charge of two elderly budges who had seen some fighting in their day, and went to join Dane Warris and the storming party who were concealed in the ravine. In the small hours they began creeping up, and when two-thirds of the way up lay in the wet grass waiting for the appearance of the sun, which was the agreed signal. He told me with what impatient anguishing emotion he watched the swift coming of the dawn, how, heated with the work and the climbing, he felt the cold dew chilling his very bones, how afraid he was he would begin to shiver and shake like a leaf before the time came for the advance. It was the slowest half-hour in my life, he declared. Gradually the silent stockade came out on the sky above him. Men scattered all down the slope were crouching amongst the dark stones and dripping bushes. Dane Warris was lying flattened by his side. We looked at each other, Jim said resting a gentle hand on his friend's shoulder. He smiled at me as cheery as you please, and I dared not stir my lips for fear I would break out into a shivering fit. Pun my word, it's true. I had been streaming with perspiration when we took cover, so you may imagine, he declared, and I believe him, that he had no fears as to the result. He was only anxious as to his ability to repress these shivers. He didn't bother about the result. He was bound to get to the top of that hill and stay there, whatever might happen. There could be no going back for him. Those people had trusted him implicitly, him alone, his bare word. I remember how, at this point, he paused with his eyes fixed upon me. As far as he knew, they never had an occasion to regret it yet, he said. Never. He hoped to God they never would. Meantime, worse luck, they had got into the habit of taking his word for anything and everything. I could have no idea. Why, only the other day an old fool he had never seen in his life came from some village miles away to find out if he should divorce his wife. Fact. Solemn word. That's the sort of thing. He wouldn't have believed it. Would I? Squatted on the veranda, chewing beetle nut, sighing and spitting all over the place for more than an hour, and as glum as an undertaker before he came out with that dashed conundrum. That's the kind of thing that isn't so funny as it looks. What was a fellow to say? Good wife? Yes. Good wife. Old, though started a confounded long story about some brass pots, been living together for fifteen years, twenty years, could not tell, a long, long time, good wife, beat her a little, not much, just a little, when she was young, had to, for the sake of his honor. Suddenly, in her old age, she goes and lends three brass pots to her sister's son's wife, and begins to abuse him every day in a loud voice. His enemies jeered at him. His face was utterly blackened, pots totally lost, awfully cut up about it, impossible to fathom a story like that, I told him to go home and promised to come along myself and settle it all. It's all very well to grin, but it was the dashedest nuisance. A day's journey through the forest, another day lost in coaxing a lot of silly villagers to get at the rights of the affair. There was the making of a sanguinary shindy in the thing. Every Bali idiot took sides with one family or the other, and one half of the village was ready to go for the other half with anything that came handy. Honor bright, no joke. Instead of attending to their bali crops, got him the infernal pots back, of course, and pacified all hands. No trouble to settle it, of course not. Could settle the deadliest quarrel in the country by crooking his little finger. The trouble was to get at the truth of anything. Was not sure to this day whether he had been fair to all parties. It worried him. And the talk, Jove, there didn't seem to be any head or tail to it. Rather storm a twenty-foot-high old stockade any day. Much. Child's play to that other job. Wouldn't take so long, either. Well, yes, a funny set-out, upon the whole, the fool looked old enough to be his grandfather. But from another point of view, it was no joke. His word decided everything, ever since the smashing of Sharif Ali. An awful responsibility, he repeated. No, really, joking apart. Had it been three lives instead of three rotten brass pots, it would have been the same. Thus he illustrated the moral effect of his victory in war. It was, in truth, immense. It had led him from strife to peace and through death into the innermost life of the people, 
but the gloom of the land spread out under the sunshine preserved its appearance of inscrutable, of secular repose. The sound of his fresh young voice, it's extraordinary how very few signs of where he showed, floated lightly and passed away over the unchanged face of the forests like the sound of the big guns on that cold, dewy morning, when he had no other concern on earth but the proper control of the chills in his body. With the first slant of sun-rays along these immovable tree-tops, the summit of one hill wreathed itself with heavy reports in white clouds of smoke, and the other burst into an amazing noise of yells, war-cries, shouts of anger, of surprise, of dismay. Jim and Dane Warris were the first to lay their hands on the stakes. The popular story has it that Jim, with a touch of one finger, had thrown down the gate. He was, of course, anxious to disclaim this achievement. The whole stockade, he would insist on explaining to you, was a poor affair. Sharif Ali trusted mainly to the inaccessible position. And, anyway, the thing had been already knocked to pieces and only hung together by a miracle. He put his shoulder to it like a little fool and went in head over heels. Jove, if it hadn't been for Dane Waris, a pockmarked tattooed vagabond would have pinned him with a spear to a balk of timber like one of Stein's beetles. The third man in, it seems, had been Tam Itam, Jim's own servant. This was a Malay from the north, a stranger who had wandered into Patasan and had been forcibly detained by Raja Along as paddler of one of the state boats. He had made a bolt of it at the first opportunity, and finding a precarious refuge, but very little to eat, amongst the Budgist settlers, had attached himself to Jim's person. His complexion was very dark, his face flat, his eyes prominent and injected with bile. There is something excessive, almost fanatical, in his devotion to his white lord. He was inseparable from Jim like a morose shadow. On state occasions he would tread on his master's heels, one hand on the haft of his kris, keeping the common people at a distance by his truculent brooding glances. Jim had made him the headman of his establishment, and all Patasan respected and courted him as a person of much influence. At the taking of the stockade, he had distinguished himself greatly by the methodical ferocity of his fighting. The storming party had come on so quick, Jim said, that notwithstanding the panic of the garrison, there was a hot five minutes hand-to-hand -hand inside that stockade, till some balias set fire to the shelters of boughs and dry grass, and we all had to clear out for dear life. The rout, it seems, had been complete. Dorman, waiting immovably in his chair on the hillside, with the smoke of his gun spreading slowly above his big head, received the news with a deep grunt. When informed that his son was safe and leading the pursuit, he, without another sound, made a mighty effort to rise. His attendants hurried to help, and, held up reverently, he shuffled with great dignity into a bit of shade, where he laid himself down to sleep, covered entirely with a piece of white sheeting. In Patasan, the excitement was intense. Jim told me from the hill, turning his back on the stockade with its embers, black ashes, and half-consumed corpses, he could see time after time the open spaces between the houses on both sides of the stream fill suddenly with a seething rush of people and get empty in a moment. His ears caught feebly from below the tremendous din of gongs and drums. The wild shouts of the crowd reached him in bursts of faint roaring. A lot of streamers made a flutter as of little white, red, yellow birds amongst the brown ridges of roofs. You must have enjoyed it, I murmured feeling the stir of sympathetic emotion. It was, it was immense, immense, he cried aloud, flinging his arms open. The sudden movement startled me, as though I had seen him bear the secrets of his breast to the sunshine, to the brooding forests, to the steely sea. Below us, the town reposed in easy curves upon the banks of a stream whose current seemed to sleep. Immense, he repeated for a third time, speaking in a whisper, for himself alone. Immense. No doubt it was immense. The seal of success upon his words, the conquered ground for the soles of his feet, the blind trust of men, the belief in himself snatched from the fire, the solitude of his achievement. All this, as I've warned you, gets dwarfed in the telling. I can't with mere words convey to you the impression of his total and utter isolation. I know, of course, he was in every sense alone of his kind there, but the unsuspected qualities of his nature had brought him in such close touch with his surroundings that this isolation seemed only the effect of his power. His loneliness added to his stature. There was nothing within sight to compare him with, 
as though he had been one of those exceptional men who can be only measured by the greatness of their fame. And his fame, remember, was the greatest thing around for many a day's journey. You would have to paddle, pole, or track a long, weary way through the jungle before you passed beyond the reach of its voice. Its voice was not the trumpeting of the disreputable goddess we all know, not blatant, not brazen. It took its tone from the stillness and gloom of the land without a past, where his word was one truth of every passing day. It shared something of the nature of that silence through which it accompanied you into unexplored depths, heard continuously by your side, penetrating, far-reaching, tinged with wonder and mystery on the lips of whispering men. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.